welcome to episode one of the Ben Barrett Experience. I want to share a lot of my life in general on this show, and I figured there's no better place to start than by documenting how I'm learning to record this show in general. I have no background in media or recording, so I'm practicing my podcasting skills. I started my first segment, The Last Train to Paris, which is a book written by my grandfather, Robert Emmett Barrett, that I would like to convert into an audiobook via this platform on my podcast. I hope you all enjoy this book. It's deeply personal, and I know nobody is listening currently, but hopefully one day we'll be able to look back and, <laughs> and see how my podcasting skills have changed over time. Uh, I really hope you all enjoy. Today is July 23rd. This audiobook is going to be dedicated to my grandfather, Robert Emmett Barrett. He's a man of incredible wisdom and even finer character. I love you, Pop. Forever and one more day. I'm going to start by reading the acknowledgement and forward of this book prior to getting into the chapters themselves. And so we begin. Written by Robert Emmett Barrett. Acknowledgement and forward. This book is written and dedicated to my family and friends, especially to my dear wife, Mary, and our dear friends, Julia Rooker and Walter, Walter Kisling. They have all been my counsel and advisors in the development and writing of my story. Also, I'm writing this book for my grandchildren to read when they are 19 and feeling a little lost about their future. They may then wonder what did their papa do when he was lost at 19. To Brendan, Benjamin, and Caitlin, my loves, St. Patrick's Day, 2007. May God go with you. And we begin some 50 years earlier, and I'm 19 again. From boy to man, my 50-year-old time capsule, the last train to Paris. September 15, 1955. Memories of times gone by, but not forgotten. This fun story of happenings and the loves of a non-warring army private named Robert Emmett Barrett and his life of maturing in France. Little did I know the greatest defining moments of my life were about to occur over the next two years. I was never to return to my home in St. Louis to live again. I was never to return to my parents, being the same person who left them. Prologue. Having completed my first year at the University of Missouri, I returned home to St. Louis. My final exams were now in the hands of God and my professors. Like so many times in the past, I had not tried my best by giving my all. I had stopped exercising the necessary initiative to be a good student. Granted, I did have a learning handicap in reading, but by practice and hard work, I had been able to overcome this problem in the past. Between the ages of 18 and 19, my maturing had been sidetracked and derailed. I was traveling the path of less self-reliance and more codependence upon my parents. This had caused me to exercise less initiative to advance my life. My faults were increasing faster than my commitment to being good. I was only committed to looking good. My greatest ambition was for people to like me, and I practiced it so much that I had stopped liking myself. It is my belief that today, in 2007, that 19-year-olds of today are having the same difficulties as mine were then. Their problems may even be greater due to the materialism and technology with which we all live today.
My parents had been successful with their painting, contracting, and paint store business. My father was elected to his first term in the Missouri State Senate from St. Louis in 1953. I had been given everything I wanted, a new car on my 16th birthday, and enough money to do my thing. My parents had provided my sister, Connie, and myself with five years of ice figure skating lessons, and we had performed an ice dancing pair act in several of the St. Louis ice shows. I was sent to a private school, Christian Brothers Military High. I worked for my father at both the painting and paint store business during weekends and summer breaks. But somewhere I had started to lose my way. I felt it mostly when my father's friends and associates started calling me Jack Jr. more often than my real name of Bob. During my high school years, I made two lifelong dear friends, Tom Bayer and Wally Kisling. To this day, we still see one another almost every month whenever I'm in St. Louis and visiting family. I did have another dear friend, Alan Tyson, a very bright star of a person who burned out much too young. I was first introduced to him in the summer of 1952 by a Christian brother classmate. During our first meeting, Alan and I immediately became like brothers of a past life, together again in this current life. Alan was one year behind me in school. He attended Culver Military High, a boarding school in Culver, Indiana, on Lake Maxicucky. Whenever Alan came home to St. Louis from school, we were always together, dating girls or just sitting around talking about life. We were either at home or in his, we were at my home or his in, on an overnight. Alan loved the committed relationship between my mom and dad, as his parents were having marital problems. They had been separated for a few years, but they always acted respectful towards one another. Alan's mother, Mabel, had an illness that kept her mostly in her bedroom in their Ladue Maryville Lane home. She had a full-time maid and gardener slash caretaker. Alan's father, Dick, lived in a condo in Midtown, St. Louis, with his new girlfriend. Dick was a very successful businessman in the small loan lending field with offices in East St. Louis, Chicago, and Danville, Illinois. It was on the 1st of June, 1955, when I received both bad and good news. First the bad, I received my second semester grades from the University of Missouri, D, in three hours of English, again, A, in two hours of phys ed, again, and C, in the balance of my 11 hours for another 1.9 grade point average, the same as my first semester. A 1.9 grade meant I would be accepted back in the university for another year in September. The good news, Dick Tyson called and he said he had two airline tickets to fly to Culver, Indiana to attend Allen's graduation from Culver Military. Dick wanted to surprise Allen. I said, when do we leave? He said, tomorrow at 11 a.m. from Lambert Airport. He arrived at Culver Military at 7 p.m just in time for the start of Alan's graduation, military dance. Everyone was in full military uniform garb. The gym was decorated with eagles, ribbons, and thousands of balloons. Dick and I waited just inside the gym door until we saw Alan dancing with a sweet little honey from a nearby high school. Dick and I walked up behind Alan and said, don't they look like a perfect couple? Alan turned, saw us, and went crazy. The poor girl was left dancing alone. Alan had not expected any family or friends to attend his graduation. He was really taken back. When all of our celebrating was over, we sent Alan back to his bewildered dance partner. Dick and I moved to the wing of the gym and waited for Alan to return after finishing his dance with the young lady. We all spoke for a while, and then we returned Alan to his dance party and friends. 
we said goodnight, and that we would see him tomorrow at 10 a.m. for the graduation ceremony. A few years earlier, the Tyson's family had purchased a lakeside home in Culver for vacationing. It sat on the southwest shore of Lake Maxicucky. The lake waters were beautiful blue, about two miles long and one mile wide. It was a great place for boating, water skiing, and swimming. The Tysons had a very fast C.J. Higgins speedboat for the house guest's usage. Alan and I had only sunk the boat once. It was during a two. It was during our second summer vacationing together at the lake. We were out on the water cruising the lake looking for girls when we hit a small log by accident. The log came through the boat's hole into the engine housing area. I opened the engine cover and saw water coming in very fast. I yelled to Alan, who was driving, take off, full speed, head for the home. We've been hit and we're sinking fast. Thank God, before we sank, we reached our home dock. Upon getting to the dockside, I jumped out with a tie-off rope in hand, tying off the boat's nose firmly and quickly to the dock. Alan and I stood there watching the boat sink into 10 feet of water. Stern first with the boat's end, with the boat's front end of the Stern first, with the front end of the boat's nose pointing up at us. Two hours later, when Father Tyson arrived looking for a boat ride, he asked Alan and me, where was the boat? We both looked at each other, pointed down together into the water at the boat's reflection, ten feet below. Dick had started to forgive us two hours later, after the boat had been raised and taken to the boatyard by the boat repair people. Alan and I said we were very sorry many times. We even tried to tell Father Dick we were out a half a mile in 185 feet deep water when we hit the log. Alan and I both said we could have lost the boat totally out there and maybe drowned ourselves, but we stayed with the boat and saved it and ourselves. Dick said he knew a good story when he heard one, knowing full well we could both swim one mile easily. Alan and I had vacationed on the lake during the month of August for, about two, for the past two summers. There were other families living around the lake, so we always had a daytime friends for water sports and young girls for evening dates. Dick Tyson always employed a full-time maid for the lake house whenever Alan and I were staying there. Therefore, we always had we were always provided with good meals, and we were well cared for by the maid. When Dick and I left Alan's military dance and went to the lake house for an evening of sleep, I had brought some extra clothes with me as Alan and I were staying for a few extra days before moving to our summer jobs. Dick Tyson was planning to fly back to St. Louis the day after graduation, leaving me with his caddy convertible to drive back to St. Louis at the end of the week. The next morning, we went back to the school for the commencement program. Everyone was taking pictures and congratulating the graduating cadets. Alan had graduated as one of the top three military officers of the Culver that year, which was a great honor for him and his father. Shortly after the program ended, Dick handed Alan the keys to his graduation present parked in the front of his dorm. It was a hot red Ford convertible with red leather seats. It was all wrapped up in a yellow ribbon. Dick had the convertible delivered and set up while we were in the graduation program. I had no idea Alan had a Ford in this future. Alan was over the top with happiness and joy when he saw it. Alan surprised his father then by telling him that he had, accepted, he had been accepted at the University of Illinois for the next fall semester. Dick had graduated from the University of Illinois many years earlier and was very happy with Alan's choice. Alan and I drove back to the lake house in the hot red Ford with the top down. During the drive around the lake to the house, Alan gave me a surprise also. He informed me that he had found us two jobs for the summer in northern Michigan on Lake Michigan. We would be working at a vacation ranch called the Jack and Jill Ranch. 
our pay would be $40 a week plus room and two meals plus room for two and meals. We would be employed as lifeguards for the pool and lakeside swimming areas, saving the guests and lots of young honeys, as Alan would say. Unfortunately, I had to tell Alan I could not take the Jack and Jill ranch offer. My father had secured me a special summertime job at the steam fitters assistant. I would be chipping welds for welders and making $125 per week. I would be working at the new Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital under construction that summer in St. Louis. My job was starting the following week on Monday, and therefore I had to be back in St. Louis by Sunday night. The money I would be making that summer would go a long way towards my next year's college expenses. Alan was disappointed that I could not join him for the lifeguarding job, but he understood. Alan and I went on to spending our last six days together at the lake, enjoying each day as if it would be our last, and they were. Alan and I drove off separately Sunday, departing in two different directions in two different cars. He in his hot red Ford convertible to Michigan, and me in his dad's dark blue caddy convertible to St. Louis. We were off on our two separate summer jobs, and that was the last time I ever saw Alan alive. The next 50 days of June and July were long and drawn out days with nothing of importance happening. I was chipping welds Monday through Friday, dating and drinking an occasional beer with Tom and Wally on weekends. Then came that early morning phone call. It was Dick Tyson, calling his voice was cracking and crying at the same time. All I could make out was, he's gone. I replied, who's gone? Dick said, Alan. Then silence. I will never stop hearing Dick's voice and those words in my head. Even after 50 years, they are still there. Then I said to Dick, what happened to Alan? Dick said, a little more clearly this time, he was killed late yesterday afternoon at the ranch. And then there was a long pause. I was told later that there had been a practice fire drill at the ranch. Alan had run from the pool to his assigned station, jumped in the back seat of the fire jeep. When the Jeep pulled away with a hard jerk and jumping motion, Alan was flipped out of the back end of the Jeep. And as he came down, his head was ran over by a 20,000 gallon water tanker being pulled by the Jeep. He died immediately. The doctor said there was no pain or suffering for him. Alan's life was gone in a flash. The lifeblood was running out of my body and my heart was in a state of stop and go motion. Then I said, Dick, what can I do for you? And Mabel, he replied, you can come to Danville tomorrow. We'll be burying Alan here Sunday. We want you and Don Stone to be pallbearers. I asked, does Don Stone know? Dick said, no. Will you call and tell him and ask him to be a pallbearer for Alan and us? Then Dick said, I cannot do this anymore. I feel like I'm dying. I wish I could right now. Immediately, I said to Dick, Don and I will be there tomorrow at noon. Give me your phone number and please do not do anything to hurt yourself any more than you already are now. Please take care of Alan's mother, Mabel. May God bless and help you both. Don has been a grade school classmate and friend of Alan and I's and a very nice guy. He had joined Alan and me on some of our outings in St. Louis, but at the time I had not seen or talked to Don in the past six months. I phoned Don, it was still early morning, and he was at home. I don't remember my phone conversation with Don. It must have been one that I never cared to remember or think about again. But the next day, I picked up Don at his home, and we drove off together to Danville, Illinois. The same went for telling my parents and others. I can't remember telling anyone of Alan's death. 
my mind must have cemented over those painful memories. But I do remember like yesterday, Dick Tyson's phone call, that terrible black Thursday morning in the July of 1955. Don Stone and I arrived in Danville about 11.30 Friday morning and went straight to the Tyson family home. It was a big house and there were many cars parked outside. Family members from all over the country had arrived, including Alan's older sister and her husband, the Cutshaws, from New York. Dick and Mabel were both broken with grief. Don and I took turns holding them both for hours at a time. That evening, there was a viewing of Alan from 6 to 8 p.m. My heart was broken once again. Here was my friend and brother, who I was with only 50 days earlier, turning down a job with him for more money. I will always remember thinking that maybe in some small way, if I had been there with Alan, this terrible thing might not have happened. God knows Alan was such a bright star to burn out so early. He loved life and everyone in it. Alan Tyson, buried Danville, Illinois. Born 1936, died 1955. 18 years young. Dick had arranged for a hotel room for Don and me upon our arrival Friday. After Saturday cemetery burial services, we returned to the hotel and our room around 4 p.m. to clean up. Alan's uncle from Phoenix had rented the top floor of the hotel for the entire out-of-town Tyson family. Don and I received a phone call from Dick Tyson about 5 p.m. asking us to come up to the room 800. It was a very large suite with a large bar, a bartender, and a total view of the city. The drinks started to flow and fly, much like back home in St. Louis at an Irish wake affair. Your glass was not allowed to go dry. Next thing I knew, I'm at a cowboy restaurant or a tavern drinking a beer and eating ribs and chicken with all the Tyson clan and friends. Western music started around 9 p.m., I think. When it ended, I had no idea. Somewhere I had lost Don Stone. Thank God I had left my car at the hotel. I was given directions back to the hotel and started walking. The hotel was two blocks down the street, I was told. Unfortunately, I walked in the wrong direction for about two blocks, then reversed my course and found the hotel after my longer walk. Before going to my room, I went to my car, which was parked in the alley behind the hotel to get something. There, I found Don Stone asleep, dead to the world. I tried to wake him to come with me to the room to sleep, but he wanted no part of rising just then. I think it was all the drink. So I left him to the sleep of the angels there in the alley behind the hotel in my car. The next morning, about 6 a.m., I was awakened by pounding on my door. It was Don, wanting to sleep in his bed. We rose later that morning around 11 a.m., went down for breakfast, and then packed up to depart for home. When Don and I were ready to leave, we saw Dick and Mabel Tyson in the hotel lobby. We said our goodbyes, and that we loved them both very much. That was the last time I ever saw them again. Don and I drove home mostly in silence. Sometimes we talked about Alan, remembering the good and funny things about him. We also spoke of life and its many future curves. We asked and wondered what was in store for our lives. We questioned our future actions. What if we knew what curves lied ahead in our future? What would we do differently to change those future curves in life if we knew them? The bigger question is, would we change anything at all if we could? We arrived back at St. Louis at 9 p.m. Sunday evening. I dropped Don Stone off and then I drove home. My mom and dad were at the front of the door waiting for me to come up the driveway. They held out their arms to comfort me. Unfortunately, they had more terrible news. My friend Dom, Tom Bear had had an accident the prior Friday night. After attending a Christian Brother class of 54 unscheduled reunions, 
The re reunion was to have been at the tavern near our old high school with just a few classmates. No special invitations had been sent, just a network of phone calls the day before amongst classmates. The attendance of our classmates had gotten too large for the small tavern. So the classmates got six packs of beer and went to another classmate's home in the south of St. Louis. The reunion party started to break up around midnight. Two former classmates, Dave Eads and Ray Burns, asked Tom for a ride back to Clayton to their car. Tom was going to Clayton, so it was not out of the way. This is where everything seems to go a little crazy to understand. Tom maintains that he was sleepy and dizzy and gave his car keys to Dave Eads to drive. The other classmate rider, Ray Burns, said he did not remember a thing. And he said that he was asleep in the car during the entire driving time. But in the event, there was a very bad accident with Tom's car and it broadsiding another car at a traffic intersection, intersection, killing the wife passenger and injuring the husband driver. Dave Eads' father and his uncle, an attorney in St. Louis, made Dave give his full remembrance of the entire evening in a full confession to the St. Louis newspaper and not the police department. The news story was in the Sunday papers, and it read badly for Tom and for the Christian Brothers reunion. There were no statements or comments taken by the reporters, nor printed from Ray Burns or Tom Bear. According to Dave's news story, Tom Bear was driving, and he ran several red lights while being chased by the police for several blocks in South St. Louis. Then Tom hit another car broadside, killing the white passenger. David's newspaper report was a full, real hack job on our high school our classmates, and Tom Bear. Why Dave gave his report to the newspaper the way he did and not to the police only makes sense if he was trying to hide guilt or set up a big lawsuit against Tom. I was told later by Dave that his uncle was trying to set up a big lawsuit, which Dave wanted no part of and would not agree to. According to the police report, which was not reported or printed in the newspapers, all three passengers in Tom's car ended up in the back seat of one on top of one another. There were no seatbelts in those days. Therefore, to this day, Tom says he was not driving, that Dave Eads was. Unfortunately, Tom had a history of careless driving and accidents during his high school years. His past worked against him. Tom was tried, convicted, and sentenced to two years in jail. This crushed his mother, father, and family. Tom served eight months in jail before being released. Over time, Tom Bear worked his way back to having a normal life. Today, he's one of my dearest lifelong friends, a fine man, a loving husband, a great father and grandfather, with many offspring. I have tried to have some relationship with Davies over the past 50 years, but it seems he has never had a balanced life. He has been on a sad, long trip with many ups and downs. I do understand things are better for him now. I pray for his health and happiness. I have not seen or heard from him in the past 16 years. The Alan Trison death and Tom Bear accident was too much for me to take. I had to escape my world and I'm going back to school is unacceptable. On Wednesday, August the 5th, I drove down to the St. Louis draft board office and canceled my college draft deferment with him. I was now to be drafted. That evening while my mother was cooking dinner, I told her what I had done. She cried and became angry. When my dad came home, she was telling him what I had done. He said he already knew. My dad said Bob Grant Walsh, head of the draft board, had called him that afternoon about what I was trying to do. My dad's answer to Mr. Walsh was let him go. Ten days after I had received a letter telling me to prepare for my draft induction into the military on September 15, 1955. Up until that day, my heart always belonged to God and my parents, but from that day forward, my eyes belonged to the U.S. Army. That summer, I had made it over the humps and bumps of those bad times to a new life beginning and a new world.